Carrying on to chapter three. Welcome to another world audiobooks, chapter three of Tarzan, or the return of Tarzan. We actually did Tarzan of the Apes uh, last year, the two years ago. So make sure to go check that out if you haven't listened to it. It's a lot of fun, really good origin story for Tarzan. So go check that out. Uh, you can listen to that and then uh, catch this uh, book number two. You don't want to spoil it. So <laughs> make sure to go listen to book one if you haven't already. And remember to check out as well anotherworldaudiobooks.com. All the links to everything are on there as well as the the links to buy uh full audiobooks so if you don't want to download a bunch of different episodes and have to listen to me talk uh, before and after the, the episodes you can just go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and there's a button to buy audiobooks directly from another world which helps support the podcast and help me bring you more episodes uh i mentioned this a little bit ago but i'm so excited about it the sherlock collection it's five full sherlock audiobooks it's so cool Five full audiobooks, and basically you're getting it for like the price of, of two audiobooks. So five audiobooks for the price of two, and all the Sherlock you could ever want. So make sure to check that out, as well as the Adventure Collection. It's a, a combination of four different audiobooks that are all adventure themes. So go check that out as well. Anotherworldaudiobooks.com. All right, so now without further ado, let's get into Chapter 3 of The Return of Tarzan. Chapter 3. What Happened in the Rue Moor? On his arrival in Paris, Tarzan had gone directly to the apartments of an old friend, Deonot, where the naval lieutenant had scored him roundly for his decision to renounce the title and estates that were rightly his from his father, John Clayton, the late Lord Greystoke. "'You must be mad, my friend,' said Deonot. "'Thus likely to give up not alone wealth and position, "'but an opportunity to prove beyond doubt to all the world "'that in your veins flows the noble blood "'of two of England's most honoured houses "'instead of the blood of a savage sheep. "'It is incredible that they could have believed you, "'Miss Porter least of all.' Oh, "'I never did believe it, "'even back in the wilds of your African jungle, "'when you tore the raw meat of your kills with mighty jaws "'like some wild beast.' and wiped your greasy hands upon your thighs, even then, before there was the slightest proof to the contrary, I knew that you were mistaken in the belief that Collar was your mother. And now, with your father's diary of the terrible life led by him and your mother on that wild African shore, with the account of your birth and, finally, the most convincing proof of all, your own baby fingerprints upon the pages of it, it seems incredible to me that you are willing to remain a nameless, penniless vagabond. I do not need any better name than Tarzan, replied the ape-man. And as for remaining a penniless vagabond, I have no intention of doing so. In fact, the next, and let us hope the last burden, that I shall be forced to put upon your unselfish friendship will be finding employment for me. <laughs> Scoffed they are not. You know that I did not mean that. Have I not told you a dozen times that I have enough for twenty men, and that half of what I have is yours? And if I gave it all to you, would it represent even a tenth part of the value I place upon our friendship, my Tarzan? Would it repay the services you did me in Africa? I do not forget, my friend, that but for you and your wondrous bravery, I died at the stake in the village of Mabonga's cannibals. Nor do I forget that to your self-sacrificing devotion I owe the fact that I recovered from the terrible wounds I received at their hands. I discovered later something of what it meant to you to remain with me in the amphitheatre of apes while your heart was urging you onto the coast. When we finally came there and found that Miss Porter and her party had left, I commenced to realise something of what you had done for an utter stranger. 
Nor am I trying to repay you with money, Tarzan. It is that just at present you need money. Were it sacrificed that I might offer you, it were the same. My friendship must always be yours because our tastes are similar, and I admire you. That I cannot command, but the money I can and shall. <laughs> well, Tarzan laughed. We shall not quarrel over the money. I must live, and so I must have it. But I shall be more contented with something to do. You cannot show me your friendship in a more convincing manner than to find employment for me. I shall die of inactivity in a short while. As for my birthright, it is in good hands. Clayton is not guilty of robbing it of me. He truly believes that he is the real Lord Greystoke, and the chances are that he will make a better English lord than a man who was born and raised in an African jungle. You know that I am but half-civilized even now. Let me see red and anger but for a moment, and all the instincts of the savage beast that I really am submerge what little I possess of the milder ways of culture and refinement. And then again, had I declared myself, I should have robbed the woman I love of the wealth and position that her marriage to Clayton will now ensure her. I could not have done that, could I, Paul? Nor is the matter of birth of great importance to me, he went on, without waiting for a reply. Raised as I have been, I see no worth in man or beast that is not theirs by virtue of their own mental and physical prowess. And so I am happy to think of Kala as my mother, as it would be to try to picture the poor and happy little English girl who passed away a year after she bore me. Kala was always kind to me in her fierce and savage way. I must have nursed at her hairy breast from the time that my own mother died. She fought for me against the wild denizens of the forest and against the savage members of our tribe with the ferocity of a real mother love. And I, on my part, loved her, Paul. I did not realize how much until after the cruel spear and the poisoned arrow of Mabonga's black warrior had stolen her away from me. I was still a child when that occurred, and I threw myself upon her dead body and wept out my anguish as a child might for his own mother. To you, my friend, she would have appeared a hideous and ugly creature. But to me, she was beautiful. So gloriously does love transfigure its object. And so, I am perfectly content to remain forever the son of Kala, the she-ape. I do not admire you less for your loyalty, said Deonot. But the time will come when you will be glad to claim your own. Remember what I say, and let us hope that it will be easy then as it is now. You must bear in mind that Professor Porter and Mr. Philander are the only people in the world who can swear that the little skeleton found in the cabin with those of your father and mother was that of an infant anthropoid ape, and not the offspring of Lord and Lady Greystock. The evidence is most important. They are both old men. They may not live many years longer. And then, did it not occur to you that once Miss Porter knew the truth, she would break her engagement with Clayton? You might easily have your title, your estates, and the woman you love, Tarzan. Had you not thought of that? Tarzan shook his head. You do not know her, he said. Nothing could bind her closer to her bargain than some misfortune to Clayton. She is from an old southern family in America, and southerners pride themselves upon their loyalty. Tarzan spent the two following weeks renewing his former brief acquaintance with Paris. In the daytime, he haunted the libraries and picture galleries. He had become an omnivorous reader, and the world of possibilities that were open to him in this seat of culture and learning fairly appalled him when he contemplated the very infinitesimal crumb of the sum total of human knowledge that a single individual might hope to acquire, even after a lifetime of study and research. But he learned what he could by day, 
and threw himself into a search for relaxation and amusement at night. Nor did he find Paris a whit less fertile field for his nocturnal avocation. If he smoked too many cigarettes and drank too much absinthe, it was because he took civilization as he found it, and did the things that he found his civilized brothers doing. The life was a new and alluring one, and, in addition, he had a sorrow in his breast, and a great longing which he knew could never be fulfilled. And so he sought in study, and in dissipation, the two extremes, to forget the past, and inhibit contemplation of the future. He was sitting in a music hall one evening, sipping his absinthe and admiring the art of a certain famous Russian dancer, when he caught a passing glimpse of a pair of evil black eyes upon him. The man turned and was lost in the crowd at the exit before Tarzan could catch a good look at him, but he was confident that he had seen those eyes before, and that they had been fastened on him this evening through no passing accident. He had had the uncanny feeling for some time that he was being watched, and it was in response to this animal instinct that was strong within him that he had turned suddenly and surprised the eyes in the very act of watching him. Before he left the music hall, the matter had been forgotten, nor did he notice the swarthy individual who stepped deeper into the shadows of an opposite doorway as Tarzan emerged from the brilliantly lighted amusement hall. Had Tarzan but known it, he had been followed many times from this and other places of amusement, but seldom, if ever, had he been alone. Tonight, Deonot had had another engagement, and Tarzan had come by himself. As he turned in the direction he was accustomed to taking from this part of Paris to his apartments, the watcher across the street ran from his hiding place and hurried on ahead at a rapid pace. Tarzan had been wont to traverse the Rue Mall on his way home at night. Because it was very quiet and very dark, it reminded him more of his beloved African jungle than did the noisy and garish streets surrounding it. If you are familiar with your Paris, you will recall the narrow, forbidding precincts of the Rue Mall. If you are not, you need but ask the police about it to learn that in all Paris there is no street to which you should give a wider berth after dark. On this night, Tarzan had proceeded some two squares through the dense shadows of the squalid old tenements which lined this dismal way, when he was attracted by screams and cries for help from the third floor of an opposite building. The voice was a woman's. Before the echoes of her first cries had died, Tarzan was bounding up the stairs and through the dark corridors to her rescue. At the end of the corridor, on the third landing, a door stood slightly ajar, and from within Tarzan heard again the same appeal which had lured him from the street. Another instant found him in the centre of a dimly lighted room. An oil lamp burned upon a high, old-fashioned mantel, casting its dim rays over a dozen repulsive figures. All but one were men. The other was a woman of about thirty. Her face, marked by low passions and dissipation, might once have been lovely. She stood with one hand at her throat, crouching against the farther wall. "'Help, monsieur,' she cried in a low voice as Tarzan entered the room. They were kidding me. As Tarzan turned toward the men about him, he saw the crafty, evil faces of habitual criminals. He wondered that they had made no effort to escape. A movement behind him caused him to turn. Two things his eyes saw, and one of them caused him considerable wonderment. A man was sneaking stealthily from the room, and in the brief glance that Tarzan had of him, he saw that it was Rokoff. But the other thing that he saw was of more immediate interest— 
It was of a great brute of a fellow, tiptoeing upon him from behind with a huge bludgeon in his hand. And then, as the man and his confederate saw that he was discovered, there was a concerted rush upon Tarzan from all sides. Some of the men drew knives, others picked up chairs, while the fellow with the bludgeon raised it high above his head, in a mighty swing that would have crushed Tarzan's head had it ever descended upon it. But the brain and the agility and the muscles that had coped with the mighty strength and cruel craftiness of Turkos and Numa in the fastness of their savage jungle were not to be so easily subdued as these Apaches of Paris had believed. Selecting his most formidable antagonist, the fellow with the bludgeon, Tarzan charged full upon him, dodging the falling weapon and catching the man a terrific blow on the point of the chin that felled him in his tracks. Then he turned upon the others. This was sport. He was reveling in the joy of battle and the lust of blood. As though it had been but a brittle shell, to break at the least rough usage, the thin veneer of his civilization fell from him, and the ten burly villains found themselves pinned in a small room with a wild and savage beast, against whose steel muscles their puny strength was less than futile. At the end of the corridor without stood Rokoff, waiting the outcome of the affair. He wished to be sure that Tarzan was dead before he left, but it was not a part of his plan to be one of those within the room when the murder occurred. The woman still stood where she had when Tarzan entered, but her face had undergone a number of changes within the few minutes which had elapsed. From the semblance of distress which had worn when Tarzan first saw it, it had changed to one of craftiness as he had wheeled to meet the attack from behind, but the change Tarzan had not seen. Later, an expression of surprise, and then one of horror superseded the others, and who may wonder? For the immaculate gentleman her cries had lured to what was to have been his death had been suddenly metamorphosed into a demon of revenge. Instead of soft muscles and a weak resistance, she was looking upon a veritable Hercules gone mad. Mon Dieu, she cried, he is a beast for the strong white teeth of the ape-man had found the throat of one of his assailants, and Tarzan fought as he had learned to fight with the great bull-apes of the tribe of Kerchak. He was in a dozen places at once, leaping hither and thither about the room in sinuous bounds that reminded the woman of a panther she had seen at the zoo. Now was a wrist-bone snapped in his iron grip, now a shoulder was wrenched from its socket as he forced the victim's arm backward and upward. With shrieks of pain, the men escaped into the hallway as quickly as they could, but even before the first one staggered, bleeding and broken from the room, Rokoff had seen enough to convince him that Tarzan would not be the one to lie dead in that house this night, and so the Russian had hastened to a nearby den and telephoned the police that a man was committing murder on the third floor of Rue Mall 27. When the officers arrived, they found three men groaning on the floor, a frightened woman lying upon a filthy bed, her face buried in her arms, and what appeared to be a well-dressed young gentleman, standing in the centre of the room, awaiting the reinforcements which he had thought the footsteps of the officers hurrying up the stairway had announced. But they were mistaken in the last. It was a wild beast that looked upon them through those narrowed lids and steel-grey eyes. With the smell of blood, the last vestige of civilization had deserted Tarzan, and now he stood at bay, like a lion surrounded by hunters, awaiting the next overt act, and crouching to charge its author. "'What happened here?' asked one of the policemen. Tarzan explained briefly, but when he turned to the woman for confirmation of his statement, he was appalled by her reply. "'He lies!' 
She screamed shrilly, addressing the policeman. He came to my room while I was alone, and for no good purpose. When I repulsed him, he would have killed me had not my screams attracted these gentlemen who were passing the house at the time. He is a devil, messieurs. Alone, he has all but killed ten men with his bare hands and his teeth. So shocked was Tarzan by her ingratitude that for a moment he was struck dumb. The police were inclined to be a little sceptical, for they had had other dealings with this same lady and her lovely coterie of gentlemen friends. However, they were policemen, not judges, so they decided to place all the inmates of the room under arrest and let another, whose business it was, separate the innocent from the guilty. But they found that it was one thing to tell this well-dressed young man that he was under arrest, but quite another to enforce it. "'I am guilty of no offence, he said quietly. "'I have but sought to defend myself. I do not know why the woman has told you what she has.' She can have no enmity against me, for never until I came to this room in response to her cries for help had I seen her. Come, come, said one of the officers. There are judges to listen to all that. And he advanced to lay his hand upon Tarzan's shoulder. An instant later, he lay crumpled in a corner of the room, and then, as his comrades rushed in upon the ape-man, they experienced a taste of what the Apaches had but recently gone through. So quickly and so roughly did he handle them that they had not even an opportunity to draw their revolvers. During the brief fight, Tarzan had noted the open window, and beyond the stem of a tree, or a telegraph pole, he could not tell which. As the last officer went down, one of his fellows succeeded in drawing his revolver, and, from where he lay on the floor, fired at Tarzan. The shot missed, and before the man could fire again, Tarzan had swept the lamp from the mantel and plunged the room into darkness. The next they saw was a lithe form spring from the sill of the open window and leap, panther-like, onto the pole across the walk. When the police gathered themselves together and reached the street, their prisoner was nowhere to be seen. They did not handle the woman and the men who had not escaped any too gently when they took them to the station. They were a very sore and humiliated detail of police. It galled them to think that it would be necessary to report that a single unarmed man had wiped the floor with a whole lot of them, and then escaped them as easily as though they had not existed. The officer who remained in the street swore that no one had leaped from the window, or left the building from the time they entered until they had come out. His comrades thought that he lied, but they could not prove it. When Tarzan found himself clinging to the pole outside the window, he followed his jungle instinct and looked below for enemies before he ventured down. It was well he did, for just beneath stood a policeman. Above, Tarzan saw no one, so he went up instead of down. The top of the pole was opposite the roof of the building, and it was but the work of an instant for the muscles that had, for years, sent him hurtling through the treetops of his primeval forest to carry him across the little space between the pole and the roof. From one building he went to another, and so on, without much climbing, until, at a cross street, he discovered another pole, down which he ran to the ground. For a square or two he ran swiftly, then he turned into a little all-night cafe, and, in the lavatory, removed the evidences of his over-roof promenade from hands and clothes. When he emerged a few moments later, it was to saunter slowly on toward his apartments. Not far from them, he came to a well-lighted boulevard, which it was necessary to cross. As he stood directly beneath a brilliant arc-light, waiting for a limousine that was approaching to pass him, he heard his name called in a sweet feminine voice. Looking up, 
he met the smiling eyes of Olga Decoud as she leaned forward upon the back seat of a machine. He bowed very low in response to her friendly greeting. When he straightened up, the machine had borne her away. Rokoff and the Countess de Coud both in the same evening, he soliloquized. Paris is not so large after all. Alrighty, thank you guys so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I, I know I say that a lot, but I do. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you sharing the podcast. It just means so much to me that know that people enjoy what we're doing here and find it worthwhile to spend, you know, half an hour a week with me. It's just really cool. It's really cool. And uh, I would love to connect with you more. Uh, there is a Facebook group. Um, I'm on there. Uh, and so if you want to jump on there and, and uh, join in the fray of uh, audiobook fans there, I would love to connect with anybody through Facebook, or if you want to send me an email, otherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. Let me know you're out there. I want to, I want to hear from you. And uh, again, a huge thank you to our patrons, to uh, Mike, Corky, Aaron, and Etiosa for supporting the podcast. If you want to become a patron, you can do that and get a bunch of awesome perks. Go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and uh, just click on support the podcast uh, and you'll be taking a Patreon. I used to do support through anchor.fm, which is where the podcast is hosted. And uh, I just found that Patreon is better for for uh, rewarding my my followers. So thank you so much for for checking that out. And thank you for listening. And we will be back with chapter four here next week. Talk to you then. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to invicta.enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's invicta.enterprises slash free checklist.